Good morning. Our text for today is taken from the Gospel of Matthew, chapter 7, verses 13 and 14. Let's hear the word of God. Enter by the narrow gate, for the gate is wide and the way is easy that leads to destruction, and those who enter by it are many. For the gate is narrow and the way is hard that leads to life, and those who find it are few. This is the word of the Lord. Praise be to Christ. Let's pray together one more time. Gracious Lord and glorious God, with you there is no shadow of turning. You are the same yesterday, today, and forever. You put us in this world for your purposes and to give us a sense of joy and identity and journey. You have given us your word, the eternal word, Jesus Christ, to be incarnate here among us. We have just heard these challenging words of Jesus from the Sermon on the Mount. Pray that as we listen to it and proclaim it, help us to do so humbly, joyfully, and obediently, all unto your glory and to our joy. Pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. I don't know about you, but the immediate reaction after reading this text a few months ago when I found out that I'll be preaching on this was, why do I get these tough texts all the time? I preach about six times a year, and like, it seems, I mean, it's not true, but I always seem to be having these tough texts. Enter through the narrow gate. And Jesus makes it abundantly clear that the more enjoyable and easy access is the wide gate, which according to Jesus, the incomparable teacher, inexorably leads to destruction in spite of his alluring appearance. Furthermore, Jesus points out that the far more people enter through the wide gate of destruction, death and desolation. In other words, this gate that leads to death sells out every time. What about the gate that leads to life? This gate is narrow, hard, and few find it. So I was struggling with this a lot. How do I actually present it in a way that would be meaningful, that would give us, really highlight the glory of Christ our Savior, because the immediacy of the text is, well, enter by the narrow gate, and not many enter it. It's hard. And uh, the other gate that many enter is much more appealing, but that leads to death. And if you were kind of put that question right to your heart, which one would you choose? Right? That, I think, is the question of the day. Which gate would we choose to enter into? Jesus says more enter into the gate that leads to destruction and few enter into the gate that leads to life, which one are we going to be? I mean, just put very, very simply and crudely, that is the question to jour. As we come toward the end of the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus is reminding the listeners and the followers that to truly follow Jesus would require a great deal more than merely lounging around listening to him talk for a couple of hours. If you were to read, if you were to speak the Sermon on the Mount, Matthew 5 through 7, in a sort of a regular discourse, it would probably take about two, three hours. So let's say it took Jesus three hours to deliver the Sermon on the Mount. There are many who listened to it, and there are many who, after listening to it, walked away and never really got to encounter Jesus again. We have the benefit of the hindsight. We have the complete text. It was recorded, and it was recorded in such a way that it was codified and became part of our scriptures, that became part of our day-to-day -day, um, reflection and reading and love. 
There is going to be a true cost to discipleship, according to Jesus. And out of his deep concern and full of love, tells his would-be disciples as to what, might, what life might be like were they to take up the call to follow seriously and make it their new life vision and reality. So I want to make a sort of personal equalizing leveling confession here. Rather than running to the gate that is narrow, I often find myself running away from it. And while I'm I'm not actively running into the gate that leads to destruction, the wide gate, but by default, it seems, I am ever so slowly and surely getting mired into the path of the ultimate nothingness. Augustine of Hippo famously quipped that since God is the ultimate being, and since evil has no part in God, then evil has to be nothing because it has no substance. It's sort of a very interesting philosophical argument that he makes in the city of God. But he says, okay, if evil is nothing ultimately, because evil is going to be destroyed and done away with, then it is nothing, and God is something, God is the ultimate being, then destruction, death, and hell are all things that are ultimately going to be nothing, going to ultimately lead to no thing, no substance. Then he raises his question. Yet at the same time, why are we so powerfully drawn to these nothings, and why are we so stupidly running away from the thing that really matters? Why do they exercise so popular and powerful pull for the majority of people in this world, including those of us here in this sanctuary, starting with me? That is the question. Why are pathways toward the gates of destruction so popular, so prominent, is this simply because they offer more fun and frenzy joy, an uncontrolled bacchanalia of some sort? If you're like me, I might not take the path toward the narrow gate that leads to life all the time, but I applaud those who do. I might be a great spiritual Monday morning quarterback. One of my favorite poems, in fact, talks about this so poignantly. It is Robert Frost, The Road Not Taken. Two rows diverge in a yellow wood, And sorry I could not travel both, and be one travel along I stood, and looked down one as far as I could, to where it bent in the undergrowth. Then took the other just as fair, and having perhaps the better claim, because it was grassy and wanted wear, though as for that passing there, had warned them really about the same. And both that morning equally lay, in leaves no step had trodden black. Oh, I kept the first for another day. Yet knowing how way leads on to way, I doubted if I should ever come back. And the last stanza right here. I shall be telling this with a sigh. Somewhere ages and ages hence, two roads diverge in a wood, and I, I took the road less traveled by, and that has made all the difference. Scholars actually debate about the true meaning and the authorial intent of Frost here in this poem. Some say he was actually being ironic, that he wasn't actually serious about that. But according to um, the ever-real fountain of wisdom, our Hallmark greeting cards, if you get his Hallmark graduation cards, it actually has oftentimes these last two lines. I took the one less traveled by, and that has made all the difference. As a way of encouraging the graduates, take the road that is not as popular, less traveled by, because that will make the difference. In essence, Jesus is urging his listeners then and readers now to take this call of the teacher of inimitable profundity and conviction seriously enough 
to take the road less traveled by in journeying with him, even if it means it's a minority report and certainly not the popular route. Then the question becomes, why would anyone ever want that? And that has everything to do with what you think of Jesus, how you value Jesus, what is he to you? Taking him seriously means as a mean, taking him seriously means a sober and sustained hard look at ourself, our savior, and the shape of salvation and the societal pressure that impinge upon our step toward the Lord of life each and every day. I would like to share with you three points to understand better what Jesus' tough saying meant for the followers then and what it means for contemporary followers today. The three points are as follows. One, problem of perspectives. Two, presence of a person. Three, promise of perils. So we're going to talk about problem, presence, and promise. So firstly then, let's look at the problem of perspectives. Before we get into this part of the Sermon on the Mount, let's look at another saying of Jesus, which I believe might prove pivotal in our better understanding of what Jesus is getting at in today's text in 7, 13, and 14 of Matthew. In the Gospel of Matthew chapter 22, 36 through 40, Jesus was asked this question, Teacher, what is the greatest commandment in the law? In the law, remember? Jesus replied, you know this so well, love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your mind. This is the first and the greatest commandment, and second is quite like it. Love your neighbor as yourself. All the law and the prophets hang on these two commandments. So friends, now let me ask you this question. These two summary statements about the law have one word in common. What word is that? It's a four-letter word, love. That's right, love. Love. Then the question becomes, what has love got to do with the law? One of the more fundamental effects of the fall or our great rebellion against the triune God is that we fail to see the inseparable connection between law and love. We think of God either as the lawgiver, giver and law keeper, or someone who is all about love. Our personalities are often like that. There are some people who are all about the law, right? Keep the law, and I'm going to lay down the law, and we're going to abide by the law. And others are kind of a little bit loosey-goosey with the law, but they're all about love. And in our understanding of God, and in our attitude toward God, and the whole thing of the Christian life, there are those who are more legalistic, and there are those who are much more forgiving, and so on and so forth. And there is a kind of a dichotomy that is, as I said, a, an effect, a necessary effect of the fall. This most tragic dichotomy in our life journey will cause us to resent God and ultimately cause us to declare our independence from God because we feel as though God's dialogue with us in the Decalogue, for example, was born because of some divine paranoia to control us. You know, think about our relational breakdowns. We think of that person trying to control when, in fact, they might be doing that deeply out of love. Sometimes our human beings and our, our composition being what they are, sometimes we seek to control in the name of love and so on and so forth. But God is not trying to do that, has never tried to give the law as a way of some kind of paranoia-filled control. We'll talk about this in just a little bit, but that is the sort of a, a problem of perspective. Is Christianity all about the law, 
Or is it Christianity all about love? How do we actually balance this seeming and real dichotomy? Law comes after love, and without love, law means nothing at all. I'll say that again. Law comes after love, and yet without love, law means nothing at all. Thus, law and love will keep the order, both divine and human. Thus, every time we hear something from God, we have a strong tendency to interpret it either as law or love. There's an interesting book uh, called Stealing Jesus, How Fundamentalism Betrays Christianity by Bruce Bauer. In it, he argues, it was written in 1997, so it's slightly dated, and I don't know if I agree with it entirely, but his major thrust in the book is that liberal Christians emphasize the love of God and the conservative fundamentalist Christians emphasize the law of God. I have a little bit of problem with that because even within the conservative Christianity, uh, there has been a sort of tendency to champion love at all costs and sometimes at the expense of the law. So let's think about these two kind of types, typology, one law, the other love. If you're a person that really kind of delves into the law and are much more law-bound than law-keeping, the way that we're going to encounter that text of 7, 13, and 14, enter by the narrow gate, for the gate is wide and the way is easy, that leads to destruction, and those who enter it are many. For the gate is narrow and the way is hard, that leads to life, and those who find it are few. If the response of the law is, wait, I have to keep this, I have to do this, kind of all the letters, i got to keep it. If I don't enter through the narrow gate, then I'm undone and I'm doomed. So feeling the, the crushing weight of obedience and observance, i got to do it because otherwise I'm going to be undone. So you take that quite seriously and you kind of embrace the challenge. Response of love will be something like, and only about love and never about the law will be something like this. Wait, Jesus can't possibly be asking me to do this because Jesus, who is a lover of my soul, would never ask me to do that. So some people like that within us tend to downplay texts like this. So our contemporary lectionary, you know, the sort of the uh, uh, worship guide that is used by main, many mainline churches, just similarly to the Book of Common Prayer, but more contemporary version, does not contain today's text as part of the gospel reading. So it's like this. For 52 Sundays, you're going to have gospel readings, so gospel, epistles, and Old Testament and Psalms. So in, in many lectionaries, they will have four scripture texts to be read as a sort of contrapuntal movement to get a better symphonic view of the, what the Bible is all about, right? Not just two verses as we do sometimes here. But so in that lectionary, as part of the gospel reading for the year, there's no text like this. Before I point my finger at the editors of a modern-day lectionary, let me be honest. If I were to draw up a list of texts for 52 Sundays, and I'm being honest here. I don't know that I'll put this text in there. There's a sense of divine humor. God is saying, so you've got to preach on this. So here we are. Embrace the challenge, right? Because I, I tend to be much more on the love side and less about love. I mean, I, I mean uh, more about love and not about the law. Not that I'm a kind of, you know, kind of a... Uh, you know, kind of lawbreaker all the time, but I tend to err on that side of love more. So there is that kind of, you know, omission here that happens. So put slightly differently, why is the gate of life and the road that ultimately leads to the fulfillment of life so narrow, thus prompting Jesus to say, only a few find it? What is that gate? What does that even mean? If these words do not unsettle our religious sensibilities and ethical securities, I don't know what would, friends. 
And before we say, wait, 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 why why are you taking me back to the law? I am already loved, I am free, and I'm justified in Jesus. Let's travel down our collective memory lane and situate ourselves on the hills of the mount where Jesus, our Lord, Savior, friend, and example, sat down to proclaim the manifesto of the kingdom of heaven. You have not read Romans yet. Okay, we're just, we're meeting Jesus for the first time. We don't, there's no New Testament. We haven't even heard of the Apostle Paul. And you might be a cheesemaker who is excited that Jesus called you a peacemaker, reference to life of Brian. Or you might be a Jewish widow or Roman centurion or Samaritan merchant who's done one's best to hide one's own ethnic identity for fear of financial loss or ethnic reprisals. And all of us hear these words of the narrow gate, broad gate, life and death, and the numerical improbability of us making it. How would we respond? You know what I mean? What I'm asking all of us to do, if it is at all possible, is to reread today's text by immersing ourselves in the first century situation. If you were there listening to Jesus for the first time, how would you respond? How does a transposition affect our reading and interpretation of these life-giving words from this harsh teacher? Probable perspective is like this. We tend to interpret this text that is either, either as primarily about the law of God as a new kingdom manifesto or primarily about the love of God as will be demonstrated in the death of the Messiah. I'm saying that that's a fundamental problem of our vision of God and also of the Christian life. Let's put it this way. God has always been in love, did you know that? Between the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit. So the essence of God is overflowing eternal love. But this love becomes the basis of all laws, cosmic, physical, metaphysical, religious, and ethical. There is an inseparable connection between God's being and act, if you want to put it in that way, in God, who God is and what God does, who God is and what God says. There is an inseparable connection and no inconsistency or hypocrisy. No duplicitousness or no two-sidedness within God. God is one and the same, simple that he is, all the way through. So law without love will lead us to destruction through exhaustion that comes from self-righteousness and self-loathing, which are actually flip sides of the same coin. If you're all about law without ever loving anybody, you just become so self-righteous and you become or that or self-loathing. Conversely, love without law will lead us to destruction through the path of indulgence and doing it our way. Around the time of the Reformation or the beginning of modernity, one can kind of put the two in kind of similar bandwidth, historically speaking. One of the ways that this failure of both love and law manifests itself in antinomianism. So Luther really reacted against it very, very seriously, saying that the antinomians really don't understand the gospel. The antinomians basically said, okay, since Christ has freed me from the law, I can do whatever I want, right? Living against the law, doing whatever one desires. Nowadays, it seems we have a slightly different version of the same problem. Autonomianism, meaning I am the law. Auto, meaning I and self, I am the law. I interpret, reinterpret the law of God so that that'll be in no way contradicting my vision and my version of the good life and the good book and the good news. So how do we overcome this problem of perspectives? 
If the first century hearers heard it as a tough clarion call of forsaking all, leaving all behind, meaning more like the law, and if the 21st century hearers who are Reformed Protestants tend to hear it as an irrelevant part of Jesus' many hard sayings that do not amount to much because we know the ending, because Jesus fulfilled the law so that we don't have to worry about entering the narrow gate and we don't have to worry about you know, the, the going the way that is narrow and tough and few go that way. That's also a perspectival problem. Is it law or love or love and law? That leads to our second point, which is presence of a person. So problem of perspectives, now presence of a person. In the Jewish tradition, the Torah was the embodiment of Yahweh. The Old Testament, as we call it, was the embodiment of who God is, God's story, God's act, and God's demonstration of mercy and justice. The law, as it was called, was regarded as, a, as sacrosanct or sacred because it was given by the Redeemer of Israel, the liberator of the Hebrew slaves, and the lover of all other lovers who had sacred jealousy and zeal for the people of Israel, precisely because for the people of Israel to love anything or anybody else would mean death and destruction for them. God, knowing it, said, do not do that because I love you more than anybody else. So it's very important to, to think of it that way and, un, and understand it that way. Redemption came first. God saved them out of God's amazing grace and love. And as a result of that, God established a covenant and says, this is your covenantal document called the law. You keep it. In doing so, you will live. And in your failure to do so, you will experience and taste death. In other words, the Jewish understanding of the law was not merely a set of abstract principles or some kind of mechanistic laws of cosmos. No, there was a person, divine though this person was, was nonetheless a real personal presence behind the giving of the law and the law itself. One of the scandals of Jesus, did you know that when Jesus came, he was a scandalous person because he really kind of, you know, rankled the sensibilities of the religious establishment. Or he really kind of got people to say, huh, is that right? That's not what we thought of God. The main focus of his scandal was this. He claimed to be, he had the audacity to proclaim himself to be the embodiment and fulfillment of the law. That he's the embodiment and, and fulfillment of the law. He said that the law and the prophets were pointing toward his coming and that he was the one who alone could render perfect obedience to the law, something that was within the grasp of our first primordial parents, Adam and Eve. So let's think about the presence of a person. That's what he promises. At one level, it is so rudimentary that it borders on being ridiculous. Jesus is there, duh. I mean, he's speaking these words, you say. And you're right. But yet, who else is he? He's not only the one who spoke these words from the Sermon on the Mount, but moreover, he's the one who said, I will never leave nor forsake you, that I will come back and take you home. Again and again, Jesus promised his presence to his bewildered flock. Presence of a person. Just as Frederick Douglass, the freedom fighter, parks lost in the Civil War period, and much beyond said, if there is no struggle, there is no progress. Yes, you will have struggle, but there is me, my presence there, that will actually be the reason for the progress that you will have. Now let's think about this narrow and wide gate typology in light of life and death of Jesus. What gate did he enter by? Right? Jesus, did he enter the wide gate or narrow gate? What pathway did he take? 
Did he enter the wide gate? Did he enter the wide and easy way? To be sure, the first time they heard Jesus they say these words, they had yet to witness what Jesus would actually do after uttering these profoundly insightful words. Yet you and I know we have the huge benefit of hindsight, 2,000 years of hindsight, that we have the benefit of having the Bible that we can read or download or access on our phones, so you and I know. Yet these followers did not. Martin Luther said in his commentary on the Sermon on the Mount that the beginning and the end of our identity and journey is Jesus. Having encountered life in Jesus, we run along, fumble along, falter and backslide, recover our steps and keep in step with the Spirit of God, all because Christ will not let us go. I will not leave you nor forsake you. So Luther says these words, Christ himself and the whole heavenly host are at my side and have traveled this very same way, preceding me to heaven in a beautiful and long procession. Until the last day, all Christendom will be traveling on the same road, and this road is called a hard way and a narrow gate. But just cling to me, and I will make it nice for you, pleasant and easy, giving you enough strength to travel the road with ease. It is the presence of a person that makes all the difference. So um, my wife and I were in England for four years, between 97 and 2001. Um, I was a poor graduate student, so we, didn't, we couldn't afford a car, so my wife and I rode our bicycles everywhere, right? And, you know, you might say, oh, that's kind of romantic. No, if you have to go, like, I don't know, like 15 miles to another village for a dinner party and you have to ride your bike, it can be kind of challenging. But, you know, Cambridge is one of those towns in England where they have such kind of well kind of network bike roads that you can go anywhere. They're really kind of well connected. And I remember this. I was thinking about, you know, sometimes going on a long journey was that journey itself was not that fun. But you know what made all the difference was the presence of a person. Then my wife was right there, and I would often ride the bike, and it's kind of silly of me, but I will try to go more toward the outside, closer to the car, so that, and she would go, she'd get very upset with me and say, why are you doing that? I said, well, in case we have to get hit, I want to be the one who gets hit first. It's like, no, that's really stupid, dummy. You know, no one, no, none of us should get hit by a car. And, but I was thinking about this because, you know, sometimes the road is very hard. Sometimes entering the narrow gate and staying on that road that not many enter or choose it's going to be a lonely path. Yet at the same time, for the Christian, the presence of a person of Jesus will make all the difference. Because it is, for me, it is the presence of my wife who was there with me all, the, all through my graduate years, and that really made all the difference in the world. Yes, sometimes the bike road itself may not be as fun, but the one riding in front of you or behind you is the one that will make all the difference in the world. Jesus said these words, Jesus lived these words, and if the great Christian truth is worth believing, then we live with the conviction that the former woodworker, carpenter, who lived and said these words some 2,000 years ago is still alive, not as a faint memory, not, nor merely as some kind of eco-spiritual principle, but as real as the presence of the table in front of me is. In front of you, there is a table and what I'm saying is the presence of Jesus is as real as the presence of the table right in front of us. Do you believe that? Do you believe that the presence of Jesus is as real as this wood object right here? Because as you do so, as you continue to journey on believing in the presence of Jesus and believing in the benevolence of Jesus, that will continue to aid us in our journey toward the city of God. 
That leads me to our last point, relatedly, promise of perils. Promise of perils. You might have said, wait a minute, Paul. I mean, wouldn't it have been better for you to stop with point two and presence of a person and just finish the sermon? Why do you have to talk about the promise of perils? Well, because that's called life. Because in our post-left Syrian, after the fall, I think there's an entrance of sin and we become infected by that virus. We share that virus, we propagate that virus, and the cosmos is full of it. Yet God is in that cosmic restoration business. God is purifying the air. God is using us as agents of reconciliation. Yet at the same time, we become mired in our own kind of idolatry. And so there is going to be that real promise of perils. Jesus promised his followers, look, there will be tribulations. You shall, in this world, you will have tribulations. Yet be of good cheer, for I have overcome the world. Jesus pulls no punches, minces no words. He says, look, in this life you will have troubles, but be of good cheer because I've overcome the world and I'm giving you, I'm not leaving you, I'm leaving you with my presence called the Holy Spirit. He will aid you. He will become the one who will come alongside of you. He would be that paraclete, the, the, another counselor that you need. There is the promise of perils, but in many churches there is an amnesia about this. What Jesus promised is not an easy life or a life full of prosperity, power, and pomp. Most importantly, Jesus did not make the connection that if you're rich, then you're blessed, and if you're poor, you're damned. Jesus did not make that connection. Quite the contrary. Jesus said it's harder for the rich to enter the kingdom of heaven than it is for a camel to enter through the eye of a needle. And we say to ourselves, you know, he was kidding, don't you? Are you sure about that? Was Jesus really kidding when he said these words? He was not kidding. You say, well, he was being hyperbolical. Yes, of course, but between, behind these hyperboles, there is a point. There's a point that Jesus is trying to drive at, and that is, who will be the ultimate Lord of all that you are, all that you have, and all that you ever aspire to be and have? What Jesus is saying is that this world alone can never be, thus should never be the measuring stick of one's own worth and value and others' worth and value. We tend to inevitably judge one another based upon the sort of worldly success of our own. Even in the Christian church, there is a tendency. Since I work at Vanderbilt, I, you know, it's a great life at one level, but at another level, I want to go teach overseas, therefore learn more about God. So being in contexts such as Tanzania or Kenya, Ethiopia or Sri Lanka, Indonesia, Malaysia, and so on, I learned so much about the Lord. And oftentimes I'll be teaching in a, in a theological college or seminary and then participate in worship or sometimes even get to preach. And more often than not, these churches are uh, not like Christ's prayers, right? I mean, in, in terms of the material presence and so on, they will be living in urban squalor and dire, dire poverty. Yet, I cannot deny the fact that many of these sisters and brothers seem to really kind of be full of that ebullience and joy of the Lord. And I said, you know, and they are going through some real hard times. I mean, I went to Kenya, just Nairobi, just a few weeks before there was that bombing at this kind of shopping mall just a few years back. And I phoned up one of my friends and talked to him and, and said, yeah, we're fine. And he said, just this is a powerful reminder for us to not hold on to the material possessions so dearly and tightly in our hands because these things will come and go. And that's a really, really powerful reminder for me of this promise of perils. We don't like to hear it. I don't like to hear it. I certainly don't like to talk about it in front of you. Yet this is part of 
the mandate of Jesus, enter by the narrow gate. The way is hard that leads to life, and those who find it are few. What Jesus is doing is this. There are three groups of people Jesus is addressing toward the end of the Sermon on the Mount. One would be his followers. Two would be the hoi polloi, the group of just a mass of people who are going to reject him. And third would be the religious establishment. And as we try to, as we go through the rest of the Sermon on the Mount, I'm sure Pastor Scott and others will talk about that. But right now, what Jesus is, the group that he's concerned about is the group that would identify as the disciples. Jesus promised a life with him, but also he reminds them of the real presence of perils along the journey. Let me try to illustrate it this way. So we have a, a, a one child, and he's a seventh, rising seventh grader, and He's going to a new school, and he's excited to, to do summer reading. And one of the books that he has to read is uh, a book called Hobbit, right? I had never read Hobbit or The Lord of the Rings when I was in seventh grade. In fact, I never even heard of J.R.R.R. Tolkien at all. In fact, until I started coming to Christ Presbyterian Church, I've never heard, you know, the name Tolkien used in the sermon so many times. But there you have it. I never read The Hobbit, and so what, what did I do? Please don't do what I did, but um, I watched the movie. <laughs> I bought the copy of the all-school reading and the seventh-grade reading that my son is doing so that I can kind of go through vicariously what it means to go through seventh grade. In this country, I was, I was a ninth grader when I moved from South Korea to America. And we watched the movie, and you know, I mean, I wouldn't recommend that, but you know, one of the benefits of that is this. I know how the book ends. I saw the movie, right? So, you know, all the twists and turns and the trials and tribulations for Bilbo Baggins that he's going to undergo and embrace, I know how it's going to go, right? And that provides a little bit of a kind of advantage and disadvantage, disadvantage in that I don't have the exhilarating joy of encountering for the first time. But the advantage is that I know how it ends. Now, let's re relate that to our own journey as Christians toward the eternal city of God. You know what? Don't you know how it's going to end? Let me tell you, you know how it's going to end. The end of the, the last book of the Christian scripture is what? The book of Revelation, right? And the, in that book, especially in the chapters 20, 21, and 22, there's a beautiful description of how it'll be all consummated according to God's wonderful plan. God said, you know, Jesus said, I'm going to wipe away all tears. There'll be no more death, no more mourning, no more crying, because all things will have become new. I will make all things new. We know how it's going to end. Sure, there's going to be lots of perils along the journey because that's what it means to live this life. That's why we have families and friends and communities and churches. But at the same time, you know, we know how it's going to end, so it doesn't mitigate. It doesn't mitigate the presence of perils, but it does mitigate the fact that, you know what, the presence of Jesus and the presence of scriptures do remind us of whose we are and where we are headed and also how it's going to end. Perils indeed. Another movie I want to talk about is uh, Chariots of Fire. And this has the, the protagonist, Eric Little, and many of us know that movie well. He refused to run on Sundays because he grew up as a, uh, a missionary kid in, born in China and raised there, went to the University of Edinburgh, went to boarding school there, and then he uh, became a very strict Sabbatarian. I don't do anything on Sunday. So he was, he was a sprinter. He was a, one of the best that England has seen or Britain has seen as a 100-meter sprinter. And then when he found out that the qualifying heat 
for the 100 meter dash was going to be on a Sunday. He says, I'm not going to run. And that then really furore erupted among the you know, British Olympic Committee. They were saying, you know what? There is a thing called a country, and when the country calls you, you have to obey it. And Eric Little said, you know what? There's something bigger than the country, and it's called God. I'm not going to disobey God. So to make a very long story short, what happens is that he decided not to run, so he's basically you know, giving up this opportunity, right? But then one of his teammates says, you know what? I've gotten my medal. He can run in my place for the 400. It's like this, right? If you're a 100 meter sprinter, right? if you're a sprinter, you do 100 meters, maybe 200 meters, but you don't normally do 400 meters, right? I mean, Usain Bolt is one of the best sprinters of our generation right now. He does 100 and 200 for sure. Does he do 400? I don't think so, because he knows better that there are other 400 runners who can do better. Now, Eric Little has this unenviable task of running in an event that he's not really used to, and he's running. He's about to run, and there are people all warming up. And then one of the kind of American sprinters named Jackson Schultz walks up to him and gives him a piece of paper. And that's one of my favorite scenes in that movie, which I've seen, I don't know, 15, 20 times. He gives him a piece of paper, Eric Little opens it up, and it says, it says in the old book, he who honors me. I will also honor. He who honors, taken from the first Samuel. You know what that is? Jackson Schultz knew that for Eric Little to give up on the opportunity of running the 100 meters, that meant that he has embraced trials and tribulations and perils. People are pressuring him, what's wrong with you? You know, what is your religion? This is all stupid and silly. Yet he chose to kind of buckle down and kind of obey God, choosing that narrow gate, narrow, narrow pathway. And Jackson Schultz, uh, you know, uh, uh, he's not one of his own teammates. He's, he's, he's an opponent, yet he knows that there's a connection that goes much beyond the national boundaries and says, he who honors me, I'll also honor. To make a long story short, Eric Little wins the gold medal in that particular event. Sure, it's been a journey fraught with tension and drama, and peril before little, it was not only about winning a gold medal. It was more about taking the narrow path, journeying with the Lord who not, not only in Edinburgh or 1924 Paris Olympics, but throughout his life in China, embracing the life of martyrdom. God did not promise a peril-free life. God promised his presence with us. Let's conclude this way. So is it law or love? I hope we can see that it is law and love. It is the love that comes first and giving us the law because Jesus fulfilled it. And in the Calvinist tradition, in the Reformed tradition, there is this thing called the third use of the law. It is because we are now set free from the requirements of the law by the fulfillment that Jesus gives it to us as a gracious gift, we can now follow God with that delightful joy as the law provides the heart of God. So let me quote from my, one of my favorite New Testament scholars, Dale Bruner, Frederick Dale Bruner, in his commentary on Matthew. He writes these words. In summary, the two great facts about Jesus are what we may call his gate and his road. The, number one, the theological gate of his gracious substitutionary death and resurrection. And number two, the ethical road of his just as gracious command to follow him in rugged daily discipleship. Bruno writes, Paul majors in the former without neglecting the latter. Matthew majors in the latter, talking about sanctification, without neglecting the former, justification. This truth is best encapsulated in one of the prayers contained in the Anglican Book of Common Prayer. Almighty God, who has given your only Son to be unto us both a sacrifice for sin and also an example of his godly life, give me grace that I may always most thankfully receive his inestimable benefit 
knowing justification, and also daily endeavor myself to follow the blessed steps of His most holy life, talking about sanctification, by the power of the same, your Son, Jesus Christ, our Lord, who lives and reigns with you in the Holy Spirit, one God, now and forever. Amen. Let's pray. Gracious God, we thank you for these words. The words of someone to enter the narrow gate. You are the gate. And so we have found the one who has entered that gate, journeyed on the narrow path that led to life, but he had a taste death on our behalf before he could give that life as a gift to us. Lord, as we are about to celebrate that wondrous act of your death and resurrection and present intercession at this table, at this sacrament, Elder Lord's Supper, help us to honor you by coming to you with joyful hearts, yearning desires of desiring that communion with you, for without you we shall perish. We thank you for this beautiful truth. Thank you for the problem of perspectives that you are continuing to mend and rectify. We thank you for the presence of that person of Jesus. And we also thank you for the promise of perils in a way, because you are not turning deaf eyes or blind eye to the problem that we have. You're ever near us and with us through the power of the Holy Spirit. We love you, Lord, for you have loved us first. In your name we pray with thanksgiving. Amen.